Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by Dr. Shelley Renee Joy, author of several books, including the recently released Tantric Psychophysics. Shelley shares her personal spiritual journey and coming out as a trans woman. She also discusses collective consciousness, the importance of inner work, and the reuniting of physics with metaphysics. Also, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts, or subscribe to the YouTube channel if that is where you view this. Also, be sure to hit that like button and subscribe to the channel. Your support is truly appreciated. Dr. Shelley Renee Joy attended Rice University on a physics scholarship and graduated with a degree in electrical engineering. After graduation, she worked with John Lilly on interspecies communication and pursued contemplative practice with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. She completed an MA in Indian philosophy at the California Institute of Asian Studies, which would later become the California Institute of Integral Studies, where Shelley returned to obtain her doctorate in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness. Dr. Joy is the author of several books, including Turning the Mind, Developing Supersensible Perception, The Electromagnetic Brain, and her latest publication, Tantric Psychophysics, a structural map of altered states in the dynamics of consciousness. Shelley, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. I'm happy to be here with you. I'm very happy to talk with you, and I'm uh, looking forward to this. Uh, before we get into the details of your latest book, uh, Tantric Psychophysics, I was wondering if you could maybe discuss your background a little bit, because it's quite impressive. I, you know, you studied with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. I know that you studied with Alan Watts a little bit, uh, John Lilly, uh, Father Bede Griffiths. This is really impressive. Uh, so I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, um, kind of introduce your contemplative practice to the audience. Well, okay, I guess I will. Um, I'm going to do something here that I haven't done on any other podcast or interview. I'm going to come out of the closet. I'm transgender. And the first 50 years of my life, I was this handsome guy. <laughs> but I was very unhappy inside because from the age of three or earlier, I knew that I was a girl. At least I felt as much as you can. Something was wrong. And I think it uh, turned into a... Um, more of a blessing than a curse because it it motivated me to try to find out who I am, you know, like the Ramana Maharshi thing, who am I? I knew something was really a major wrong. I um, was brought up as a Catholic, so my first five or six years, uh, when I was about six, I was in a, a class with nuns who told me that about God, and of course I was really interested because apparently god can do anything and god created you god made me and i thought well i need to communicate with god and say he made a mistake here and what can i do or why did he do this so that that's kind of my earliest memory of uh questioning um and seeking and it, it's pretty much guided my whole life i'm, I'm just almost 76 right now and i've been searching for uh understanding uh of that I first actually gravitated toward um, towards science because at the time when I was young, 
science was really respected, probably more than it is now by the average public. Um, we were in the middle of the space race and there was Sputnik and we landed on the moon and all that. So I felt that science would probably help me understand myself and my, my situation. Um, also, um, a lot of transgender people throw themselves into their studies or their uh, sports practice, whatever, in order to try to forget about the problem, that the conundrum that really weighs heavily on, on a person who feels like they're very screwed up, so they better work hard and ignore, ignore that part of their life. So I pretty much was successful in, in uh, studying. Uh, I first started out studying um, physics, and uh, I switched from physics to math, pure mathematics for a year. And then I got really interested in uh, uh, communication theory. And um, I, I went into communications, which was, uh, you know, how radio waves, how you can modulate them and, and uh, encode information on them. And, and uh, I just got really fascinated with all, all things having to do with communications and, and quantum physics too. Well, I, when I was 21, I went to, uh, to California to do computer programming for a missile range as a, as a student uh, uh, program they had. And uh, it was 1967, the summer of love. And I had married to try to solve my conundrum. And my wife knew that I was, there wasn't a word for transgender back then, but I told her I felt like a woman inside. And, um, this is really strange. And, you know, we shared everything like young, young lovers would do, I suppose. And she said, well, we probably should get married and maybe that would solve your problem. And that, a lot of transgender people try that, but it, it doesn't really change who you are and doesn't solve the problem. But she was an artist, which was quite interesting, a painter. And that got me really interested in art, but also we hung out with a lot of hippies who took drugs. And so I was introduced to LSD very strong LSD, Owsley acid, they call it, uh, on the beach in, uh, near Big Sur at night. And that night pretty much changed the direction of my life because I realized that this, there's this vast thing called consciousness. I had never considered it before, you know, consciousness. It, it, it can be changed and you can, you can explore different dimensions. Uh, so many things are uh in the in the universe going on that science hasn't even begun to look at so i went back to school and i decided i wanted to study uh consciousness and uh, physiology of consciousness and psychology but i quickly discovered there was no interest in that there was no department of that there was not, nothing like that in academia or engineering or physics um so I graduated and went to New York and started trying to find out more about it. I, uh, I discovered in a, a library, uh, an open book that had a book that was very interesting. It was just lying there open. It's called In Search of the Miraculous by uh, a mathematician, a Russian named P. D. Uspensky. And uh, this book was amazing. I thought, you know, I, I thought there were two kinds of books. Fiction and nonfiction. And to me, nonfiction was like, a, you know, reading the thermodynamics or radio waves or electrical engineering or biology. But there's this whole category of new books that opened up to me. Uh, 
but basically it's mysticism or metaphysics, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I began looking for books like that, and soon I began going to lectures in New York by various people. Um, I was trying to explore consciousness because I thought this was a way of really understanding what it means to be transgender and maybe how I could deal with it better. Uh, I, I met a, uh, a young uh, Tibetan named uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, Tulku supposedly, and I started following him and going to his lectures uh, and, and studying with him a bit. He was a very interesting person. And um, it got me reading a lot about Tantra and uh, Tibetan mysticism. I also uh, started following um, uh, John Lilly, who was an, another, uh, he was a medical doctor who was very interested in consciousness and entheogens and, and uh, sensory deprivation chambers. And actually I became friends with John Lilly and uh, because I was also an engineer and we both had uh, ham radio licenses of all things. And he helped me to construct a, a silent, uh, totally dark uh, anechoic chamber in my loft in the Lower East Side where I would meditate. Um, so that was the beginning of my serious approach to meditation. But I also browsed the local bookstores for metaphysical books, and I soon discovered a lot of books on yoga. I started practicing yoga and started really seriously trying to meditate. Um, and I discovered Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And they turned out to be, I thought, the very best manual on states and stages of consciousness and the techniques of, uh, not only the techniques of meditation, but um, but an entire sort of a, a framework of, of consciousness. Uh, and uh, I, I felt um, that this was really important to understand. And I was really surprised that science, the hard sciences uh, that I, I knew and loved so much, totally ignored metaphysics and religion. Because here was data from generations of, of uh, saints and mystics uh, I call them psychonauts because they're exploring the psyche. Uh, even William James, the famous founder of American psychology, uh, was really interested in meditation and, and drugs, how drugs, entheogens, uh, 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 laughing gas, we call it now, nitrous oxide. Uh, he experimented with things directly, uh, exploring consciousness and trying to come up with uh, uh, maps and, and frameworks to understand it. But there was very little in, in, uh, in hard science uh, at the time. And even now, it's, the field is just opening up where, where highly trained technical uh, people are beginning to study consciousness. And now there's a number of departments of consciousness studies throughout the world. Um, but back then, there were none. So I was pretty much on my own. So I read everything I could. Uh, I discovered the works of Carl Jung. And I spent a whole month's salary on getting his collected works. And I read quite a bit of Carl Jung. Uh, I learned uh, an awful lot over the years. I have a huge library of books, uh, many of which I still haven't finished. But um, I feel my job has been to make connections uh, between science and mysticism and direct experience. And of course, the direct experience is my own uh, direct experience. 
So I bring my own perspective. We all have our unique perspective on everything. Um, so what I want to try to do on the books I've written, I've written 17 books recently uh, since I got my PhD in 2016, um, trying to show connections and trying to extract what really pragmatically works for people interested in changing their consciousness and exploring the, the deeper levels uh, of consciousness. So uh, I'll try to share some of that in our, in our short uh, discussion this morning, perhaps. Um, one thing uh, I'd like to uh, talk about is collective consciousness. Um, I first came across that idea reading Carl Jung. He wrote a lot about the collective unconscious. And of course, even Freud, uh, you know, a lot of psychologists think that a lot of our psychological problems come from things that are repressed and we're not in touch with. So the idea is to, quote, get in touch with your deeper levels of consciousness. Uh, but Jung went further than that, um, thinking that there's a collective consciousness. And he had a lot of uh, proof of that, at least he wrote about it. I uh, eventually came to the conclusion that it's not really collective unconscious, it's collective consciousness, that there are, there are we ourselves individually are a collection of probably individual consciousness. Uh, some people say uh, people can have like, some people have had 30 altars, they call them altars. Uh, and many of the altars don't share the memories with each other. So people can be, I mean, if you call them schizophrenic, that's one thing, but um, we are a collection of, well, for instance, if you, all of the cells in our body and all of the organs, I believe each, each organ has its own sort of consciousness. Um, it's, uh, it, it's not the same as the consciousness that's generated by our brain and our neurons. Um, that is our ego. And, and that pretty much uh, is who we think we are. But in reality, I would say we're not who we think we are. Behind that consciousness is something that's looking out through us. We're just one perspective in the universe of this single consciousness that Carl Jung called the self with a capital S, uh, the one self. Uh, many religions call that God. There's one awareness that it, uh, it, it sort of bifurcates. It sort of um, uh, becomes fractal. And it looks out of each one of us individually so that it has so many different perspectives of what's going on. Uh, but Meditation and contemplation and what I call tantric psychophysics um, provide ways of us uh, cultivating a, a way to get in touch with that one consciousness, to, um, to become sort of one with our real self. And uh, in, uh, Carl Jung called it individuation, getting in touch with your one self. And uh, Asian mystics, Indian mystics, uh, they call it different things from uh, uh, nirvana to enlightenment uh, um, to, to samadhi. And the, the basic techniques are, and I'll, I'll jump right ahead to Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, uh, which are pretty much the same in other religions, is to quiet down your ego, your, your monkey mind, that the, the neuronal uh, brain mind that deals with your individual memories that have been collected throughout your lifetime and uh, 
and uh, you, you're actually it's, it's a certain consciousness in space and time so our ego works in space and time but the collective consciousness the, the big self operates from other dimensions and that really correlates with physics uh, quantum physics these days there's something called string theory which uh, probably most people have heard something about the calculations with particle accelerator uh, data show that there are other dimensions there are uh, uh, right now they posit that there are 11 dimensions and space and time are only four of them there's the three dimensions of space you know like x y and z and the one dimension of time those are four dimensions that we live in but there are seven additional dimensions and um scientists don't really know what to call them they usually use them mathematically but some scientists have called them things like charm and you know other things uh they could be things like love but um all of the the teachings uh and, and also uh some recent uh, uh experiments that have been done with ayahuasca show that by shutting down the the normal time space ego consciousness that we all share when we're awake we our consciousness sinks down deeper into a connection with the one uh one consciousness and before getting to that there are different layers of that like an onion um uh these uh not hidden my new book uh Teilhard de Chardin was really a scientist who he happened to be a priest also uh, so sadly his writings were censored while he was alive but he developed a science called hyperphysics and he wrote extensively about the evolution of consciousness and hyperphysics and he talked about the noosphere uh the noosphere is kind of a collective consciousness of the planet earth uh there's a certain certain frequency or dimension that humans can link into in the collective consciousness and other people uh in the last 10 years or so have been uh reporting the same thing i have a, a friend uh, a professor who's uh his name is richard botch who has written a book on lsd he was a professor of a uh, uh, religion for 30 years but in his spare time he would take massive doses of lsd by himself in the dark at night and and record it and he came into contact he believes with many different levels of of collective consciousness and there's uh according to like Teilhard de Chardin there's one for the planet earth there's the, the geosphere the biosphere and the noosphere and the noosphere is the thinking envelope of the planet earth and um even uh Tolstoy I, I actually during the pandemic the first year I read War and Peace for the second time just as kind of a self-challenge but um aside from being an amazing novel about uh, people throughout the book he talks about history as a living thing that is beyond the uh it has nothing to do with individuals per se that there's a movement of history that's trying to do something and people uh individuals just play a, a role in that like a cog um so you can think of, of uh, what we're thinking right now a possible war with russia everyone's trying to stop this conflict in the ukraine but uh no one seems to be able to stop it you know they uh we just throw more and more weapons toward the front lines 
It's building up more and more darkness waves. Nobody really wants a war, but the, but the collective consciousness seems to be moving in that direction. That would fit in really well with uh, the mystic uh, G.I. Gurdjieff's theory that, that we are food, he said we are food for the moon, that when we die, our consciousness gets collected by the moon. But uh, I think Tolstoy would say our collective consciousness uh, is part of the human race becoming part of the planet. And that when people die in wars, they feed, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's one of the Vedas talks about food. I am food, you are food, we're all food for something. And he, the human soul is feeding something uh, larger collectively. So that when we die, we become food for the collective consciousness of the planet. You know, an, another example is global warming. It seems like for the last 30 or 40 years, people have been aware of global warming and climate change. Everyone wants to stop it. Everyone's trying to stop it, but it, but nobody's stopping it. The governments aren't doing anything. Uh, people individually really aren't doing anything. We're still flying and doing things. It's as if uh, it's, it's just the planet wants us to warm it up. Like maybe we're a transitional species that needs to warm up the planet. And what does it mean by warming up the planet? Well, heat uh, heat is a way that consciousness uses to to uh, develop higher bandwidths and more information. Uh, uh, things can operate faster. Maybe we're staving off the next ice age for the planet. There's something happening here that's beyond uh, the possibility of individuals or even individual countries to stop it. So. Um, there is also, our, the, I went back to, to Christopher Bosch. He wrote a really good book um, uh, about uh, what he saw in classworks. He called The Living Classroom. That, that when you take a course, after a few sessions, there's almost like a collective consciousness of the classroom. You feel like you belong to something bigger than yourself. Uh, then you can go to politics. You know, we have groups of and the others follow another um, football games. We all follow a certain football team. You know, we like to belong to a sort of a group consciousness. So um, that seems like a reality to me. And what I've studied through uh, uh, reading a lot about uh, meditation is that there are ways that we can individually develop our internal systems to tune into those consciousnesses. Uh, to tune into a collective consciousness and to talk about. And to do that, we just need to get really quiet inside. Uh, ideally, you meditate in a dark space where there's not much noise. Uh, when I meditated in the city, I used to wear earplugs. You can get really good ones from a gun store, ironically, <laughs> to, to silence the external sounds. And you start to focus on internal things. And uh, in my book, Tantric Psychophysics, I collected all of the material I could find that I thought was really relevant to shutting down your monkey mind, the, the normal operations of the brain and memory, and starting to become aware of um, almost an internet, not internet, but internet, it's an inner network of collective consciousness that people can, can link to and begin to communicate with. 
in Tibetan Buddhism, there's two stages of meditation. One is uh, shamatha, which is quieting down uh, your monkey mind, uh, quieting down your thoughts and your memories, trying not to think of anything. And at some point, you begin, begin to become aware of what something else is going on. There's, there's something, something communicating with you. And uh, according to the Tibetans, that you move into Vipassana, which is a sort of a healing integration of you and the collective consciousness. Another thing uh, I thought was very interesting was some recent studies on ayahuasca uh, and also um, uh, uh, magic mushroom, psilocybin. They did some brain scans of people on ayahuasca and psilocybin to see what parts of the brain uh, light, light up, become active uh, when people begin having these amazing visions. To their surprise, instead of lighting up, these areas become very quiet. They shut down. They stop operating. So that really surprised them a lot. Like, how can you become more aware and all these active visuals and everything happen when your brain is shutting down? So. I think I've told you everything I know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. well, 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 thank you for all of I, that. Uh, there's, there, there's a lot to dig in uh, with most of that. Um, so, uh, uh, so thank you. I now I'm like, okay, now where do I start? Um, <laughs> uh, let's let, let's kind of hone in because I know that our time together is a little bit uh, limited today. Uh, and let's kind of focus on your recent book, uh, Tantric Psychophysics. I told you before we began speaking that my background is in religious studies, and that's my real passion. You know, I found your book very refreshing from a academic point of view, and I think it's very available uh, to anyone. Uh, it was very well written. I think that you were able to clearly explain what can be some very tricky concepts. Uh, so, for example, I think that your sections on Pantanjali's Yoga Sutras are probably the best concise explanation of them I've ever come across. Uh, your discussion of the physics of quantum science also comes across not just as informed, but reliable. There's a tendency, I think, by some authors to play fast and loose when it comes to quantum physics, but um, that was not the impression that I took away from your work. It, rather, the impression was, I can trust this author. So I thought that maybe we could spend a few moments kind of unpacking the title, uh, Tantra Psychophysics, Tantric Psychophysics. And I thought that maybe we could start with tantric because there's a lot of misconceptions about tantra uh, in the West. So I thought I would ask you to first discuss what tantra is, and then the rest of the title, tantric psychophysics. Yes, well, tantra. I first discovered, uh, got interested in tantra when I started working on a master's program in Indian philosophy, much to the horror of my father, who was an Air Force colonel and um, thought that I should stick with engineering. But uh, it seemed the most important thing for me in the world to find out who I was, who we are, why we're here, where we're going. And so I discovered 
from books I had been reading in New York, that Indian philosophy seems to have the widest range of, uh, um, of theories and discussions of, of what, what is God and what, why are we here and how we can train our psyches to, to begin to understand and pick up more information than we get from the external world. And the other thing was, I, I, dis I discovered that Tantra is very, uh, on one level, it's interested in the integration of male and female. Of course, being transgender, I thought that that's, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Is, in fact, when I first went to India, I got off the airplane and at the end of the, uh, just as you start to uh, go into the terminal, there's a big statue of, uh, it shows one half of the statue is male with a half of a beard. The other half of the statue is a female. I thought, oh my God, <laughs> this is good. <laughs> but um, what I discovered was that uh, we are all both male and female. And I think it has to do with the left brain and the, and the, and the right brain, that the left and right hemisphere have a slightly different function. Uh, yin and yang, the Chinese would say, male and female, we might say. Uh, but I discovered that there's a third element. Uh, there's, you know, the Trinity is a big thing in most religions and many metaphysics. There's a third thing looking out, not beyond the male and female. That third thing is the self, young self, or the Brahman, or our God, you can call it. it it's me, it's I, it's the one, the, the universe, one story is me. And we're all just like little, uh, we think we're separate, we think we're individual, but we're just different perspectives. And I think that God is able to channel surf through each one of us to get all kinds of stories going on. I, I think entertainment is uh, something that has been uh, omitted in lots of uh, serious religious and, you know, I think entertainment, I think God likes to be entertained. Why? <laughs> I think God enjoys his creation, her creation, this creation. And, uh, and this variety of uh, this 10,000 things is uh, that all stewed together makes it very interesting. Uh, and, and it's never the same and it's non-repeating. Tantra, though, um, I learned when I was studying for my master's degree, is a very serious subject in India. Uh, in America, even at the time when I began studying, it was totally misconstrued. You would have, they always thought it was the yoga of sex. And even now they have Tantra workshops given by young blonde uh, American ladies who call themselves, you know, Swami so-and-so. And they come to my Tantric workshop and your sex will be better than ever. And so it's almost kind of embarrassing for me to write a book and use the word Tantra uh, on the cover. But I thought I have to try to educate people. Tantra actually is a word in, in Sanskrit that uh, uh, comes from, the root is a, a, a weaving, like a weaving of, on a loom. And the idea is that Tantra uses whatever works. It weaves together for each individual, uh, whatever works to get you beyond your little limited ego and to connect with the collective, the interior uh, Brahman or the higher levels of consciousness. Um, and when you take entheogens, that's a shortcut to it, but you sort of lose control. Uh, your, your ego is totally shut down and you jump into what the tantrics are able to enter in a more controlled way. 
So Tantra is, it's not really a religion. It, it was actually, uh, take it actually the, the early proponents of Tantra in India were not Brahmins. They were all kinds of people, including women. It was looked down upon by the traditional Brahmanic and Vedic uh, serious religious people. Of course, it was looked down upon by the British who were uh, Puritans at the time, still are in some extent, but, um, but Tantra, uh, basically the, the movement is trying to find out what works, whether it's drugs or exercises or, or doing mantras. There's all kinds of practices in Tantra that, that people can use. And I, I really believe that each individual person has to find out what works for them. And it doesn't mean you throw away what you learned from your childhood religion. It means you, you expand on that. I was raised as a Roman Catholic. I still, uh, at the beginning of meditation, I say a couple of prayers, Hail Marys and Our Fathers. Um, it's a way of connecting you to your ancestors. And the feelings that you generated as a child when you prayed can still be uh, activated and help. Uh, and that's the whole um, thrust of Tantra is to use whatever helps you to, to transcend your limited, narrow, um, limited awareness of, of reality. And so both India and, and, uh, and Tibet have actually also followed Tantric practices. So you have, you have a vein of Tantra in, uh, in Tibet, which is somewhat different than the one in India. And in China, it's called Taoism. I would say Taoism is very tantric. It, it uses empirically what works. So what I've tried to do in, in, in my work is, uh, is, is not just say, oh, I'm a Buddhist and I'm gonna write about Buddhist meditation or I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a yogi and I write about yogi or Christian. I actually have a long chapter. Um, like one, one similarity is most, uh, of the early Christian uh, saints were called the Desert Fathers. They went off into caves in the silence of the desert, and they would go in a very quiet, dark cave and, and pray and meditate. Um, I think Muhammad came up with the uh, the Quran by he would go and meditate in a cave near Mecca, uh, and he learned how to meditate. You, you learn by doing. You don't really learn a lot by reading about it, but the reading can help you uh, develop the motivation to try, to try something. And the more you try, the more you learn, you know, it's like, like anything, uh, you, you can't learn, you can't ride a bicycle by reading about it. Uh, you have to actually get on the bicycle and try to balance and not fall too many times and get over your fear. The other thing is people have to overcome fear because when you let go of your, your ego, uh, especially if you take entheogens, which, which I recommend to young people maybe to experiment with entheogens to some extent so they can see firsthand what's there uh, in, in those inner dimensions. Right now, psilocybin seems to be uh, a very useful entheogen. Uh, LSD is a little bit maybe too strong for most people, but um, I would almost hope that as a rite of passage for high school students, they would have a a short course on, on other forms of consciousness and just let the children experience, the young adults experience uh, in maybe in a controlled environment with sitters, 
what you can do with your consciousness. Because uh, like me, when I was 21 and I took LSD on the beach, I realized this is something I need to explore the rest of my life. But uh, as far as I knew, science hadn't been exploring it. And it was like a new world, uh, a new world that has been uh, undiscovered. Um, so taking LSD was like sailing off in the ocean toward the horizon. And you hope that you wouldn't fall off the end of the world or get devoured by monsters. There is that fear, I suppose. <laughs> but but uh, I've, I've never heard of anyone who really died on LSD or psilocybin. And most people that have taken it have developed a, uh, a religious practice or a, a yoga practice or some kind of contemplative practice. And I, I think that's the kind of thing that's needed in our materialist society where everything seems, you know, people don't, they aren't taught why we're here or even, you know, that we've separated religion and philosophy from most of our uh, high school and even college studies. And we're training people to get a job, you know, to get a job, a corporate job. Uh, meanwhile, we're not connecting with the collective unconsciousness. Uh, I mean, some people are. This, uh, there's, there's 7 billion people on the planet now. And even if 1% uh, are religious and become interested in psychonautics, um, I think that's very good. Yeah. But uh, it needs to become uh, consumerism. Yeah, I agree. You know, with we you think that, that to be happy, we need to consume. Right, right. And it, it would be nice if our culture had some kind of initiatory experience like other cultures have in the past uh, to initiate people into a much larger kind of consciousness. And it seems to me that that would also help break some of the binds of some of the collective consciousnesses that we find ourselves in uh, to help us, you know, break through uh, and experience something so much bigger than ourselves. Yes. And not only that, when, when you, when you, when you go into these other dimensions, you find many people have written about it and I have experienced it. You start to get in touch with, with love and compassion. Uh, the, the great uh, Tishnat Hin just died a week ago, and he wrote wonderful things about that. That you know, love is really important. And when you just uh, base your life on uh, you know playing games and watching movies and drinking beer and wine and uh, going traveling and uh, uh, buying uh, buying things, a new car, you know, this this makes people happy for a, a short second, but it doesn't really increase your love and respect for other people. It, it kind of separates people and says, oh, I want to get as much happiness for myself. That's the, that's the goal of life. But it's not. And begin to connect to these wider uh, uh, noospheric levels of collective consciousness, you feel a sense of belonging mm -hmm. and you feel a sense of love and, and empathy with other people and caring for other people. And um, that's what we need so much right now uh, in the world, I think, to heal it. Um, and that is the most unexplored area of reality. Um, we've gotten really good at everything technical. Uh, we can make devices, uh, we can share words and information, but we haven't learned how to go deep. Uh, only religions seem to be trying to do that. But religions have sort of lost their way mm -hmm. and uh, experience.
experience of entheogens and drugs, just the opposite. Um, they say, just believe this and learn this and recite this and uh, do this once a, a week and in a group and, and you'll, you'll feel better and, and God loves you and all that. But it's kind of simplistic and we need to be a little bit more sophisticated and, and I think develop further a lot of these techniques that I, I, I call psychophysics. Mm -hmm. Because psychophysics, that's the other uh, word in the title of my book, Tantric Psychophysics, um, it's learning how, how to run, how to operate your consciousness, uh, other, other than just letting the consciousness run wild and your monkey mind just jumps from one place to another. Um, developing the, the mind muscle for being able to concentrate, to be able to quiet your 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 thinking mind to be able to reach out and listen and you begin to uh, uh, receive from this collective consciousness uh, wisdom uh, understanding a feeling there there are feelings of understanding that are hard to put into words uh, we don't even have english words or, or chinese words there's not words for a lot of the things that we can do with our minds so we're just at the beginning, I believe, of studying consciousness as a, as a, as a subject and training people to uh, develop their minds and their consciousness so that they can do things with them. Uh, what I've always uh, uh, tried to express was that there are other ways, of, there are other senses beyond the sight, hearing, taste, and touch. These other senses are are what you begin to develop through meditation. And these senses allow you to sense other beings. Uh, in fact, you can even sense uh, people who have passed on, dead people, I know, it sounds a little bit strange, but um, that's sort of what they did in the 1800s in seances and things. You can actually, you know, if you go into a really deep state of meditation, you can feel, uh, say, your, your dead parents or grandparents, if you focus upon them and you try to reach out, uh, there'll, there'll be a response, a very subtle response at first, but after a while you can feel like you're one with them. Um, the idea is that energy in physics, uh, energy is never uh, created or destroyed. Same thing as information okay, is stored within these other dimensions. Uh, uh, I've described it in my book and other people have. Uh, they call it the Akashic uh, records in India. The Akasha is uh, these other seven dimensions are where everything that we experience, or think, or feel, or remember, is, is stored. And uh, we can contact those dimensions and we can actually feel uh, the reality of people who have uh, lived before us. Even people you've never met, like I, I've been reading a lot about Teilhard de Chardin, reading his words, following the, his thought patterns. And when I meditate, sometimes I focus upon Teilhard, and I actually feel that he's there with me in my in my deeper uh, levels of my awareness. Um, it's uh, uh, there are amazing things that that happen if you just uh, open up and 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 give these things a chance and are able to stop all of the external things, eating, on playing a video game, on going to a movie, on watching Netflix. Spend like, I spend 30 minutes a day. It's not a terribly amount of time. 
But um, when you meditate, you can actually go into these timeless dimensions so that even though it seems like you've only meditated for two or three minutes really deeply, you've, if you've left the time dimension, you've entered this timeless dimension for, for an infinite amount of time almost. You've actually come back uh, healed. Uh, something in you gets stronger and more healthy. Um, they say, for instance, that ayahuasca is a, uh, as a, as a, as a medicine. And uh, in South America, you know, they, they have more than ayahuasca, but primarily ayahuasca is used. They call it plant medicine. And I always wondered what plant medicine meant because I thought, well, I, I don't need to take ayahuasca to, for something I'm, I'm not sick. But, you know, when I started taking ayahuasca, and this was just a few years ago, I had a few experiences with it. It felt like it tuned up my whole uh, a week or two after taking it. Um, but while I was experiencing it, I was, I was a little bit scared because it felt like I was almost like I was getting raped. It was like the, the ayahuasca, I was connected with this collective consciousness of the organic life of the planet. Uh, almost like vines, you could almost feel vines and snakes and things, but but you become you realize you're part of that, and that started looking through me and at me and uh, explored every nook and cranny in my psyche and my physical body. Uh, it was kind of scary, but then you get past the fear and suddenly you feel like it's healing you, like it's tuning you up. You know, you're getting tuned up and improved. And that's the experience of many, many people who've written about uh, ayahuasca, for example. Um, I think all of these things are developed by the universe, these drugs that, it, that interact with the human psyche and physiology uh, for a reason. And what we need to do is, is, is uh, use them with skillful means. Uh, uh, you know, I, I never like to take a LSD and go to a party, a disco party or something. Although I had a lot of friends who did when I was in my 20s, I would stay home and be alone in the dark at night and take, uh, take it. And, and it was uh, a major experience uh, in my life that helped me uh, become more sane and more centered and uh, understand uh, more why I was here and who I was. Uh, I'm still not sure why I'm transgendered, but that's a mystery. There's a lot of mysteries going on in this, the universe. Sure. And, sure. Um, I moved up here and uh, I live in the mountains in California. Right now I'm thinking about moving to Italy because we've had so many forest fires here. It has interfered with my meditation, especially last year we had this Dixie fire and the fire kept getting closer and closer every day. Uh, I think I have a little bit of PTSD from it. My major fear was getting my uh, two or 3000 books burned. They burn really well in a fire. So I have them packed up and I'm moving to a stone house in Italy uh probably in the spring and uh i i think it's important uh to live close to nature too right. uh just walking in nature you feel the the energy of the trees and the fresh air and i'm jealous of your cabin but i will be honest that that's my great fear is the books um my library is I don't know the number, but I have a cost. <laughs> uh, my library is worth about $40,000. And uh, I would love to be in a cabin in the mountains, but the fires frighten me. 
And uh, I also have a soft place in my heart for Italy. I rode my bicycle through Italy. So uh, whereabouts, <laughs> wow. yeah, whereabouts in Italy are you going to be going? Well, it's uh, Assisi. It's the very center of Italy, oh, okay. about 200 right. miles north of Rome. Okay. Assisi is the, uh, the spiritual heart of Italy. It's where St. Right. Francis was born. Right. But my right. place is, uh, uh, there's a mountain behind, uh, and there's a little valley. And I'm in this really quiet valley. And the lovely thing about Assisi is you can't build any new structures on a medieval ruins. Mm. So I have a four-story stone tower that I've renovated, and uh, we're going to move there this year, hopefully before the fires begin. Mm. And my book should be safe there, yeah. <laughs> uh, the way the monks saved their books during the Middle Ages, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm jealous of that. You're welcome right? to visit. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I would like to go back to Italy. I want to get my partner to go to Italy. He, he refuses to travel anywhere, but I know he would love Italy. Um, and uh, I, I, yeah, I've only been the once, but it was very uh, soul stirring, I think. So I know that we're uh, kind of running out of time here and I, I don't want to keep you. I want to respect your time. Uh, but I wanted to just kind of ask that I think that what you're doing in your work, you know, I think it's important. And I agree with so much that you've said, especially in the terms of how we think about religion. And I teach religious studies, and I'm constantly trying to impress that upon my students, that religion is not just about belief, that there's an experiential aspect to it. And I do bring in meditation to my courses and uh, start each class with a very brief sort of meditation. And what I find so interesting, I think, with what you're doing is that this question of consciousness seems to be really one of the more interesting questions that Western philosophers are just now starting to examine. But yet, when you go and look at the Indian traditions and some of the other world traditions and the contemplative traditions, they've been examining this for a very, very long time. And so I see that you're trying to combine yeah. that. And, you know, you had, I think you credited this to uh, Tehard, uh, where we have made this separation between metaphysics and physics, and it's impeded both. And it seems to me that it yeah. created this sort of dualism and that what you're trying to do, especially in tantric psychophysics, is bring them back together. Yes, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I look at the uh, the traditions in India, and uh, they're really the scientists of consciousness, uh, the scientists of the internal. They they looked inside. You know, they had they had wonderful environment for growing mangoes and food. Uh, you know, they didn't have a problem with the environment. Yeah, the Europeans in the far north did have a problem with the environment. Their external environment was the focus because of the cold, the short growing seasons. Uh, the difficulties of the environment. So they really dealt with the external world. And that's how our, our, our Western science has grown, looking externally at the external world of time and space. Whereas the science of India, and to a lesser extent, uh, uh, Tibet and, and, and China, they, they dealt with the, the, the science of the inner world, going within uh, to, to find uh, uh, laws and... Uh, and information, they they they're the brightest people. Unfortunately, our, our there's been a split, and Western science, uh, kind of along with Western culture, has 
somewhat looked down upon the brown-skinned people of India and Tibet and China. You know, the British Empire was a little bit snotty with them. And so Western science has still not really looked carefully at all the science that's come from uh, uh, a couple thousand years of recorded history of exploring consciousness. And so, you know, I, I've tried to make it my life work to, to, res, uh, to, to, to unite the two. You know, you can't just study science in one aspect and ignore the other aspect. You know, you need to bring things together yeah. uh, in, in sort of one science. And I think Teilhard had a good word for it. He called it uh, hyperphysics, hmm. uh, you know, beyond the material physics to include the physics of consciousness. Well, I know that we are at the end of our time. So let me ask you two final questions. One, other than moving to Italy, uh, what do you have uh, coming next? What are you working on next? I really want to uh, uh, finish a book I've been working on for many years, which is uh, explaining Patanjali's sutras, uh, a commentary on Patanjali's sutras. There's a lot of commentaries on Patanjali's sutras, uh, but they're all, some of them are way off. None of them really, uh, well, one, one's called The Science of Yoga by I.K. Taimni. Uh, I.K. Taimni was a chemistry professor uh, who became a theosophist, and he's written a really good book. It was written about 60 years ago, but it's uh, a really good book on uh, interpreting it. But I think uh, now that we know quantum physics, which he, he knew nothing about quantum physics, uh, and electrical engineering, I bring that into trying to explain more clearly Patanjali Sutras, which is a very comprehensive study of meditation, uh, states and stages of meditation, techniques, uh, uh, superpowers, so-called, that you can develop uh, through cutting-edge meditation, and the, the general framework of consciousness in the universe. The, the one self, the, the one self that we call God, that he would call Brahman, and how we can communicate with God, how we can link, how we can tune in, you know, establish a connection like with a Wi-Fi link between our consciousness and the collective consciousness, not only with a great Brahman, but with the planet Earth itself, our own planet, which we are part of, and we're doing the work of our planet. But I think without knowing uh, exactly what it wants, I think we're making a lot of mistakes along the way. So I'm excited about uh, writing that book. Uh, probably it'll take another couple of years to write it, but I'm also writing a biography, my very strange biography of, you know, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> I've had an interesting life. Right. So, and I've met a lot of fascinating people. I'm also a painter and I paint. And maybe I'll be a grandma Moses before long of <laughs> abstract painting. You never know. Yeah, well, I would I would enjoy reading both of those, so I uh, will look forward to them. Uh, the final question is, where can people go to find out more information about you and your work? Uh, my web my website has uh, quite a bit of information and uh, ten or twelve uh, recorded interviews. Okay. Uh, hopefully, I'll I'll put a link to yours on on there too. My website is shellyjoy.net. It's okay. S H E L L I. J O Y E dot N E T. Okay, wonderful. I, and will... I appreciate the time you've given me to talk with you. Oh, sure, sure. I I uh, I feel like we've only just 
skim the surface, <laughs> uh, that there's a lot more that we could discuss, uh, especially about the yoga sutras, um, because I had some questions about those. Uh, but I, I do appreciate your time and your willingness to speak with me today. Uh, I will put a link to your website in the show notes in the video description on YouTube. And I will also uh, include links uh, for your most recent book. So Shelly, thank you so much. I really okay. appreciate your time today. You're welcome. Hey, bye-bye. And that's a wrap on episode 29 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a minute to spare, consider posting a positive review and please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been releasing episodes weekly and would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. But that extra content takes a lot of time and a lot of work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.